News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's a real warm welcome after this long weekend that I think everybody needed. I certainly felt uh, refreshed thereafter. We've got a brand new co-guest host, uh, Stephen Nathan. Stephen, lovely to have you as part of our team and uh, welcome to the Biz News Power Hour tonight. Thanks so much, Alec. Great to be here. For those who don't know Stephen Nathan, he was uh, the JSC's top-rated analyst for some years. Uh, then he went off to found 10X and recently left 10X. He's uh, having, would you call it gardening leave at the moment, Stephen? Uh, re-energizing, recharging, I call it. <laughs> and by the look of what you have in your library in the background, I'm sure you're getting to some books that you haven't seen for a long time. Well, Stephen will be talking to us about our four big stories today. Uh, the first one is all to do with crypto, which uh, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts has been busy looking into. I can't wait to delve into it. Uh, got Earl Loxton, uh, the CEO of DCX Capital, one of Michael Yudan's partners. Um, and then John Avadia, the CEO of OVEX. I can't wait to dig into that. And then I had an interview earlier today with Nick Hudson uh, on his sudden fame that he has found and in fame as far as YouTube is concerned. The presentation that he gave at the Biz News Investment Conference went global, viral. Half a million people watched it, and it's 27 minutes long, so you must know that's quite some commitment. And then on Thursday night, YouTube decided to take it down. Nick says, wherever he goes, people recognize him. Now, I'm not surprised, but it's a, a really interesting interview on exactly what happened there. Well, let me talking about a story that Stephen, I'm sure, will have plenty to comment about. Uh, Justin, it's to do with Credit Suisse, which now has finally come out and quantified its losses in this latest story that we've been carrying for a while. Correct, Alec. I mean, the story's been going for just over a week now, and those numbers have now come to light. Uh, Credit Suisse with a $4.7 billion loss. To put that into perspective, um, that would that, that would be in the top 40 of the JSC, a company of that size. Unbelievable. And unfortunately, the CEO who was running Credit Suisse from 2015 to February 2020, the first African to run a big international banking company, Tijani Tiam, uh, is probably licking his wounds in Rwanda, where he is at the moment. He's an Ivorian, but he is running uh, a, well, he's got a head, a, a big position in Rwanda that he's been appointed to. When he was appointed in 2015, uh, the share price of Credit Suisse was $26. When he left in 2020, it went down to $10, and people are blaming him for some of the issues that are now emerging. And we'll talk to Koki Koiman on that story too. And the final story is actually a very good one. It's to do with a boom in second houses. The properties, the second properties in South Africa were up in the first quarter, in the last quarter of last year by 46%. You could look at it one of two ways. On the one way, some people are saying, mm, this is showing that the rich are getting richer and that in fact the pandemic did not help the middle classes and the poor people, because who can afford to have second homes? Certainly not people in that category. But we'll be finding out more about that from Andrew Golding, the CEO of Pam Golding Estates. Before we get into this rather interesting program we've got lined up for you this evening, Melanie Nathan has been looking at the news, and here's our flash briefing. South Africa has finalized a deal for the supply of 20 million shots of the COVID-19 vaccine produced by Pfizer and BioNTech, with delivery starting mid-April. The deal has been delayed by Pfizer's insistence that South Africa's health and finance ministers personally sign the pact, which includes indemnity clauses to protect the company, according to correspondence between ministers. Pfizer will deliver vaccines every quarter starting this month, according to Anban Pile, the Deputy Director General of the Department. Old Mutual African Infrastructure Investment Managers is backing natural gas as the fuel needed to help the country transition from coal power generation to the use of wind and solar. 
The firm says it will consider funding companies that compete for the right to produce 3,000 megawatts of electricity from gas in an upcoming bid round planned by the government. Sid and Tui, co-managing director of the 29 billion rand fund. South Africa's biggest coal consumers, ESCOM and Sasol, plan to rely on gas to cut their greenhouse emissions while maintaining their output of electricity and fuel. Old Mutual's stance is sure to rile the country's renewable energy lobby, which argues that the country should take advantage of solar and wind technologies and not invest in gas infrastructure that may be rendered obsolete in the near future. On the global front, the European Commission has told governments that the COVID-19 vaccine rollout could hit a key target earlier than expected, under new projections that hinge on people accepting AstraZeneca's shot. The European Union's executive arm says most member states will have sufficient vaccine supplies to immunise the majority of people by the end of June. But uncertainty over Astra's vaccine may cloud the outlook. The European Medicines Agency may indicate a potential link between the drug maker shots and rare cases of blood clots, Mr. Gero Daly reported, quoting Marco Cavalieri, EMA's chair of the vaccine evaluation team. The UK's medicine regulator is also being urged to change its guidance on the use of the vaccine in younger people, according to Channel 4 News. Ship traffic through Egypt's Suez Canal was briefly halted again today, two weeks after a giant container ship wedged itself across the waterway and blocked it, delaying hundreds of cargo ships. The oil tanker Rumford needed tugboat assistance, but was soon operational and the northbound convoy was moving normally again, according to Bloomberg. The Chinese have introduced their own digital one in what the Wall Street Journal describes as a reimagination of money that could shake a pillar of American power. China's digital one will be controlled and issued by the country's central bank. A digital version of the established currency has benefits that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are lacking because they exist outside of traditional finance systems and aren't legal tender like cash issued by governments, writes the Wall Street Journal. Subscribe to Business Premium for bundled access to the Wall Street Journal and more on this story. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Business Flash Briefing. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, our Melanie Nathan is no relation, I, I think, to Stephen. Or is she, Stephen? No relation, not that I'm aware of. Uh, quite a lot of interesting stuff in there, though. Just uh, your thoughts quickly on the vaccines. They would not give us the Pfizer vaccines unless the ministers of health and finance personally uh, signed off on it uh, to indemnify Pfizer as a result. That's quite unusual. Yeah, it's pretty scary. It's like, a, you know, if you're a director, we've gone from sort of a limited liability to personal liability and personal surety. And it seems as if that has been taken over or transferred uh, by the pharmaceutical companies to protect themselves. Uh, and, you know, on the one hand, you can, you can, you can, try and understand it. But on the other hand, you know, there's a bigger issue at play, which is really to try and get these vaccines into the right hands as soon as possible with the least amount of friction. Uh, you know, and hopefully the pharmaceutical companies are going to, uh, you know, help us and others out in this way. And hopefully government is going to do whatever it can and indemnify. I'm not even sure what the process would be to indemnify ministers, you know, but hopefully uh, the legal team and the legal counsel would be on top of that. So we get the, the friction uh, and the stuff that isn't helping us out the, out the way and we get the vaccine you know, in the right hands and to the right people as soon as possible. The other big story to come from there is the move towards natural gas. Now, it is interesting that we've had problems in northern Mozambique with Total. Uh, the information we have is that they've now pulled everybody out of that uh, structure, which is the biggest investment um, – well, one of the biggest investments ever in Africa, but certainly the biggest investment by some distance – in Mozam, uh, I hope that it means that uh, we are going to be getting lots of gas from the Southern Cape fields because it's going to have to come from somewhere if we now switch from coal. Yes, and exactly. I think that's, you know, that is the, uh, the big theme. I mean, just out of interest, I was listening to a podcast uh, on impact investing, which is kind of like ESG, except it's, it's, it's actually measuring, uh, it's, it's more kind of measurement than just the qualitative factors. And uh, this was a global podcast, and uh, the uh, the person mentioned actually Sassel, uh, and he said, as an example, the numbers he quoted, he said Sassel's revenue is about $12 billion, but their cost, their impact cost, 
uh, is something like $17 billion when measured uh, on this sort of global standard. So effectively for every dollar of sales, 140% are kind of emissions, carbon emissions. And on the other end, on the good side of the chemical sector, they mentioned BASF, which is sort of 14%. Uh, and it was very interesting talking about kind of the way that investors uh, uh, will start looking at companies is on an impact and a cost to the environment, which is exactly why we need these alternative uh, sources of energy to come online you know, sooner rather than later. With your old investment analyst's hat on, that would be a warning sign, surely, for Sassel shareholders. Very scary. It's very scary. I mean, this, it's... it's uh, you know, there's a, there's 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 a lot of talk, rightly so, about you know ESG climate. Uh, I think impact investing is more of a newer, uh, certainly from my side, it hasn't been as uh, prominent. You know, we've had CSI, ESG, uh, but impact investing. What's really uh, interesting about it is that uh, it brings in the quantitative, the measurement. You know, so you know, as we know, what what gets measured gets 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 implemented and done and what doesn't get measured. So a lot of the qualitative soft issues are very hard to get a handle on. And what this person was saying, and it's not just this person, it's actually a, a, a global movement supported by a few trillion dollars of, of assets behind it, assets that are managed uh, in this in this way, is saying that you, uh, you're going to need um, accountants uh, to sign off on the, the impact, the impact accounts. And also very interestingly, which I didn't know, Alec, I don't know if you knew this, um, but this person said that um, uh, coming out of the the 1929 stock market crash, so the 1930s depression, uh, in 1929, prior to 1929, companies did not uh, were not required to have audited financial statements. So it was kind of you know their best estimate or whatever you like uh, of of their financial performance. And one of the consequences coming out of uh, 1929 was that uh, companies had to. Uh, adhere to uh, accepted globally accepted accounting practices, so unified set of standards, and those standards needed to be audited. And he was saying, kind of given where we are in the world today, believes it's another inflection point uh, where there's going to be a, uh, uh, enough pressure from the public, from the government, from regulators uh, to force companies to disclose impact on a consistent basis so you can compare, you know, uh, Sassel with BASF or you know Rio Tinto with Anglo, whoever it may be. So you can compare it and it's audited. So it's quite fascinating. And if you if you kind of as you say, if you follow that theme through, you know some of these companies like Sassel, uh, you know would need to get their act into gear pretty pretty quickly uh, because they certainly seem to be on the wrong side of uh, of that important trend. Yeah, if you're listening to a global podcast and you get a South African company mentioned in a bad light, it's not such good news. But uh, Justin. Watches the markets for us. How's it been going today, Justin? It was a green day. The JSC All Share Index was strongly up to 68,100. Some of the day's highlights include Sabanya Stillwater up 5% to 69 Rand a share. That's on the back of stronger precious metals prices. MTN increased 3 Rand 50 to 89 Rand a share. PPC fell 5% to 2 Rand 80 as insider trading allegations lurk following the company's restructuring and financing announcement. And car track down 10% to 58 Rand as investors remain concerned about the price it'll list on the NASDAQ. The Rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 54 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand 15 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 22 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,743 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $64.20 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 840,000 Rand a Bitcoin. Well, you've been following crypto and you've been following a very big story in the markets. Give us some background before we introduce our two guests. So Earl Loxton is the CEO of DCX Capital. Um, they've recently, well not recently, but there's, a, there's an ETF, a crypto ETF, which basically tracks um, 10 of the best performing or the biggest cryptocurrencies out there. Um, it's sort of come to light. Um, there have been a few issues with disclosure and management fees, which I'm sure Earl um, we'll delve into for us. And then we've got John Avadia, uh, the CEO of OVEX, um, and that's a crypto's trading platform, and their competitors are Luna. And John was in the studio just a little while ago. John, nice to have you on the show again. Uh, well, wh where did you come across this story, and, and what is the concern? Inve investors are just concerned um, with regards to the disclosure. The, the assets under management weren't disclosed. And then also the management fees, there's a 2% management fee that is quite excessive, especially for an ETF, and it's only a basket of 10. Um, 
also uh, it's got 70% exposure to Bitcoin, 15% to Ethereum. So diversification has also been put in the limelight. Um, but oh, I'm sure you'll be able to iron out all these issues um, that are currently circulating in the investment in the investment world. So what's the story, Earl? <laughs> what a weekend! Um, anyway, thanks for, thanks for inviting me on the show, Alec. It, uh, it's it's great to be with you guys. Um, yeah, so so at some point we uh, stopped publishing uh, AUM. Uh, you know, it was a um, a decision we made um, around uh, somewhere in 2020. We, the the assets under management grew substantially, you know, and at some point when we hit 100 million, we decided to to not display it anymore. And it was it was mostly a decision around security around transparency and, 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 and this sounds terrible, but the we were at that stage even showing the addresses on our website. So so someone could actually follow those crypto deposits coming into our uh, crypto wallets. And from there they could basically follow the, the bigger wallets bringing money or funds into our uh, into our fund. Now, now, if you if you know what you're doing, you could actually start uh, identifying those bigger clients bringing these deposits to our fund, and we decided to to stop displaying it until we find such a, a, a structure that will um, that will be more in line with with uh, regulation that is pending and hopefully coming. I, I I need to just make a correction, Justin. This is not an ETF. You know, so so we we are not in ETFs. We are in the process of preparing to to uh, apply uh, for an ETF. Whether South Africa is ready for it, we don't know. Uh, that would obviously be the environment that um, something like like our index would thrive. Um, is it a basket then? Is it a basket of uh, on on it's, easy it's equities? A basket yeah, it's it's a basket available on easy equities. It's the top ten cryptocurrencies. And how's it done so waiting. far? How's it performed? Because you're telling you're telling yeah. us that a lot of money has actually been streaming into it. A lot of money is streamed into it. We we're now sitting on about four hundred million. So it's it's been a great time. Um, I think the easy equities investors obviously saw the performance or the growth. Uh, we're up about six thousand percent. Uh, for the term six thousand percent, Stephen Nathan. <laughs> well, I mean, that sounds crazy to me. Have you have you ever heard of anything quite like this, excepting during the '87 boom in in, in on the Jersey? Not uh, not sustainably. And I think that's obviously you know the concern is the sustainability uh, of something like that. You know, clearly it can't keep on uh, at that at that kind of a rate. And this whole crypto is is becoming more mainstream and more fascinating, but the price, I mean, the price is a bit scary to be honest, because any asset that does that well, uh, you know, um, it, it, it probably raises a bit more concerns than giving comfort. I think people would prefer to see a more steady increase. But if you, if, I can just ask you the legal entity. So what, you say it's not, uh, it's not an ETF. What are people buying the legal entity? Are they buying a note? Because I also know that you can't buy crypto in South Africa, so the money's kind of got to go offshore. And you can just very simply explain the legal entity that they're buying. Right. So, so when we set out, we created a token on the Ethereum network. So it's uh, it's called an ERC. It runs on the ERC twenty protocol. Now, when you uh, buy the the, the ERC twenty token, the EC ten. Um, you are issued that token. Uh, so it, it effectively becomes like a crypto in itself. It's a crypto asset. It, it sort of lives on the Ethereum blockchain. That entitles you to the underlying coin. So effectively making you the owner of the basket that, that underlies the token. But the the instrument as the instrument, there, there is no regulated instrument in South Africa right now to represent a tangible form for this index. And the closest we got to that was it was was to give it some structure with a token. We we don't allow the clients to take the token off the off the platform, so it's all um, 
it's all housed, it's all kept in, in cold storage, the, the, the tokens themselves. And, um, and their value is basically, is not basically, but 100% derived from the total of the underlying uh, assets under management. So it, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a sum of uh, total AEM divided by total tokens in issue or tokens accrued to be minted. Um, so so if, that, if that helps... Let's just get back to the story itself of the 2% uh, fee that people are complaining about. Now, if you made 6,000% increase, I, I, if you made that for me, I wouldn't be complaining. But I, I guess there are people who, who, uh, who are watching their costs uh, very carefully. What, what happened there, Earl? Uh, are you guys coming around? We want to bring John in in a moment because he, I think, is, uh, is one of your competitors and he might have an alternative. Oh, look, you know, last year when we announced plans with Easy Equities that they would uh, acquire 51%. We, we, we made a few uh, uh, changes. You know, we started communicating through the Easy Equities platform. Um, we were, for instance, using Twitter, which is a questionable uh, platform in itself. But we were announcing, making announcements through Twitter, which, again, it's, it's, it's not our favorite um, uh, a format. So um, we upped, you know, the 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 the, the AUM was quite um, modest in 2020, and there was no ways that this company was going to be able to build the structures with with own finance, you know, internal finance, self-funded. So you know, we we looked at um, what um, Grayscale is doing, we looked at what Bitwise in America is doing, and these guys were all doing two percent. So we said. Look, we're going to do two percent. So uh, we're going to offer two percent. If there's pushback, um, you know, we'll we'll reconsider. But we put it up to two percent, and actually, it's it just took off. So it it had no effect. And I, you know, I I realize it's a lot of money, two percent. <laughs> Again, um, you know, the the greater plans for us is to to uh, get ourselves listed as an ETF. And you know, in 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 line with ETFs, those 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 fees will have to come down significantly. Yeah, significantly. John, your your perspective of this? Yeah, sure. So, um, I think uh, the product's obviously a great one. I think uh, index is is needed in the market, and I mean the the results speak for themselves. Um, in in 2017, our investors uh, they launched an index fund called Crypto Twenty, and they're taking a fee of 10 percent for the raise. Um, and I couldn't believe that anyone would put their money in it. And then they raised $150 million. Um, so, so like, like you say, Alec, the, because the returns are so insane, uh, people do tend to look, uh, overlook these high fees. Having said that, they, they charge 10% in the first year and then thereafter they charge, uh, 0.5%, um, per year. But, um, I think because of the volatility, it's not, uh, it's not insane. Um, it also makes sense for the investors to, to get a exposure to that assets and pay that little fee. And then who knows, maybe they get a 6,000% upside. So John, 60, John, this is my question. So EC10, um, it's constituents, obviously 10 cryptos, 70% Bitcoin and 15% Euther- Ethereum, 85% of the total exposure. If I had to buy those two cryptocurrencies, um, say 10K each on OVEX, what would my fees be? So it'll be a one-off fee of zero point two five percent. But OVEX also caters to the higher volume traders, so the minimum would be a hundred and two hundred fifty thousand rand. Um, and then we have a that would be the twenty-five zero point two five. And then for retail, um, there's no minimum, and then your fee there is one percent. Okay, so it's one. It's it's at worst half of what you pay yeah. uh, through to Earl and his team. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, the difference is, I guess, Earl and his team, they're getting the other 10, and uh, they're rebalancing, and they're doing a bit more. But absolutely, if you if you don't want to pay the fee, uh, an index is quite an easy one to, to do yourself. But, but you, there's also the benefits of of, uh, of just having it done for you. But if you've got 85% of it in two different assets, uh, where does the rebalancing cost come in, Earl? Well, when, when people refer to rebalancing, it's it's – you know, this is a free-floating market cap-driven index. So there's no real rebalancing. There's just the constant 
deploying and and movement inside the index. So there's a lot of churn. You know, every day we have a million coming in, we have two million going out, and and then the opposite of that. So there are um, lots and lots of fees um, involved. You know, it's it's that is where your so-called uh, rebalancing fees actually manifest. So so it's you know we don't we don't explain it as rebalancing fees, but but you know the industry understands it as as rebalancing fees. It's merely the the execution, the procurement of the underlying coins, which is a daily, real time activity that that builds up these, you know, that runs up fees. So, you know, Stephen, it's it's really interesting that this area is now also getting some focus on fees. Certainly, from what uh, Justin has been following, people are grumpy about two percent, and it, it seems ridiculous when you've got all these uh, these huge uh, increases. But it is showing something that you've dedicated a lot of your profession to, uh, to, that people are really worrying now about what the fees are, even on something like crypto. Yeah, I'm very surprised that they actually are worried about, uh, about fees. Uh, because, you know, the thing about fees is that you never see them in the short run. Uh, you know, even if you're paying uh, 2%, uh, which, is, which, which, which is definitely high for, for an index fund, but crypto is just another uh, – game altogether. But, uh, you know, if you pay an extra 1%, you know, we spoke about an extra 1% or 2%, in any one year, you're never really going to see it. And you're not going to see it over two or three years. But it's really the compounded impact that's doing that for 30 or 40 years that kills you. Um, so it's really for long-term investors. Uh, and also when you're in an asset, uh, you know, when you're sort of in equities or balanced portfolios, your long-term return is fairly uh, the range of that return is very, very narrow over the long run. Going back more than 100 years in the U.S. or South Africa, you know, you're kind of getting roughly real inflation plus about six. You know, so your variance might be four to six percent real return, something like that. And then one or two percent is is not one or two percent. It might be a third of that return, and then the compound impact eats away much, much more. So that's where it really matters. Obviously, you know, if you're investing for a short period of time. And I'm sure that people that are investing, investing in crypto, well, it hasn't been around that long. So, you know, I'm sure they're not long-term investors, but they're much more traders. Uh, and, and certainly from my perspective, we're much more of a short-term speculative uh, asset. The volatility is enormous. So 2% in terms of volatility seems irrelevant, and it certainly would be irrelevant in the short run. And if you're getting X thousand percent returns, even if you're getting 50% returns, as you say, you know, if someone said to me, listen, I'll give you, you know, I can guarantee you'll get you 20 uh, 25% returns, and I'm taking 2 or 3% with pleasure. Um, but it is interesting to see people are worried about fees with such an outsized uh, return. It is an interesting topic. Justin, you happy we covered it? No, I think we, we covered it um, to its full extent. Brilliant. Thanks, Earl. Uh, continue with your, uh, your, your good wishes to your partner, MJ. Uh, he seems to mm-hmm. have a golden Midas touch for uh, finding the the new opportunities and John thanks for coming on the program as well. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well earlier today I spoke to the newly famous Nick Hudson. He's an actuary and actuaries are not known to be people who actually want to be out there, but he's become out there because he has taken a stance on lockdowns. He was at our business investment conference where he gave a 27 minute presentation. It was up on uh, YouTube, which my colleague Nadia Swat did a great job on, and it's been watched by half a million people. However, it was taken down. So I got hold of Nick uh, late, uh, this afternoon to find out exactly how this sudden fame has impacted him and uh, got some very interesting conclusions. Here's a short clip. Nick Hudson is the co-founder of Panda. In his day job, he's an investor, private equity investor, and a qualified actuary. But he's much more famous at the moment for having the presentation that he made at the Business Investment Conference, attracting first half a million views on YouTube and then being taken down. Well, did it surprise you, Nick, that YouTube decided to remove this very popular video? 
No, not really, Alec, because what YouTube is committed to doing is to taking down anything that suggests any kind of disagreement with the World Health Organization or local health authorities, regardless of whether or not the objecting voice, the dissenting voice is accurate. We got the email from YouTube which says that it doesn't allow content that explicitly disputes the efficacy of local health authorities or the World Health Organization's guidance on social distancing and self-isolation that may lead people to act against that guidance. So they were quite specific. I suppose the first thing is, I wonder why it took them so long. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think they probably want to create the illusion that they're not that censorious. And so they will go after the things that get traction and that people respond to. But it is a very disturbing place that we've gotten to because among those 500,000 views that we got in the first couple of days and all the comments that flowed from them, there wasn't a single instance of anybody complaining about some specific in the presentation. So there were no you know, contestations of the factual content. A lot of that factual content actually was derived from the World Health Organization and the CDC, Johns Hopkins University. There were no contestations of matters of fact, a hundred to one ratio of likes to dislikes. That kind of very broad injunction that they, they give you, they never follow up if you ask them, you know, well, tell us which statement you would like us to remove you know you, you can't have that conversation with them they'll just reissue the same warning again so it was 27 minutes in total yeah did you have yeah. to mention masks because it seems to me as though that might have been the reason it says here the world health organization's guidance on social distancing and self-isolation and i guess one could add masks to that which you're not in favor <laughs> yeah no we, we think it is part of the whole theater and has no basis in real science. Um, but we were quite careful to use their own words to tell that story. Okay, so there's a businessman in Cape Town who says, let's go and sue them. Uh, we're not so keen because it's going to be a long and heavy uh, court action. But uh, I guess some people are very upset about this. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of emotion around it. And we've had a lot of inbound communication. I think it's woken a few people up to the extent to which they've been lied to, because that has been what's going on. You know, you have a media, mainstream media, which has committed to reinforcing whatever government says. Um, and that's a very dangerous situation because from time to time, governments and the World Health Organization make mistakes. And if you destroy the means of error corrections, then those mistakes get propagated all around the world. And that's what's happened you know, nonstop since this whole coronavirus crisis broke. It also seems a bit like locking the door after the horse has bolted uh, because mm. half a million people saw this. Uh, you were very eloquent in your presentation. Uh, you were laying out the the argument against lockdowns, and you've had quite a lot of reaction internationally, including from Fox Television, where you're appearing tonight. Yeah, tomorrow morning, South African time. I'm going to have to be rising early. Um, on the Ingram Angle, I think is the name of the show. Yes, that's coming up. And then the other thing that's happened is, a lot of people who were irate at the video being taken down, you know, and they'd shared it with friends or whatever, and the friends come back and say, hey, it's gone. What they've done is upload uh, copies to any number of other uh, servers. So the number of copies is proliferating across all other platforms. And there, people have done things like create web pages that – summarize the content in other languages and that present the slides along with the written text for people who, I don't know, don't have high-speed internet, um, that kind of thing. We've had in some instances, you know, several people independently translating the thing into the same language because it's a distributed sort of effort now. Um, and I think that's going to be interesting to watch over the next couple of days. A fairly good marker here is to go to the 1957-58 flu epidemic. There were very few non-pharmaceutical interventions around that epidemic. It came and went. Not quite the same number of deaths per million of population, but very similar. And if you go and read the history books, the, the economic reviews of that era, they don't, many of them don't even comment on the fact that there'd been a bad flu season. You know? And so I, I think what's happened here is we've, we've come out with 
policies which contradicted the guidelines that had been put in place over many decades of effort at the World Health Organization, at the CDC, you know, by governments all around the world. We threw those guidelines out, went along with a completely untested strategy, which actually doesn't comport with basic um, epidemiology, and then ignored the emerging evidence that they weren't working and were having enormous collateral damage. Why? Yeah. Why did mankind I, do that? So I think our institutions have been fundamentally corrupted, our institutions of public health. There are large bodies like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization who have unbelievable degrees of reach and power. Um, I think it's almost impossible for your average university professor to come out and say anything that really contradicts those organizations. And that, of course, has been entrenched by the censorship and the media parroting of these organizations' narratives that we started the conversation with. And so, to, in my mind, that's the, that's the problem, is that there's just, if, if, you want to, if you want to end the growth of knowledge and discovery and learning, then what you do is make it subject to vast centralization and the opinions of one or two people being able to override everybody else's. And that is exactly what has happened here. I get thrown out of YouTube not because there's a you know some broad agreement that I should be. It's because one person or a handful of persons find it inconvenient. Quite a story, and uh, we are right in the middle of it. That full podcast oh is available on Biz News uh, Radio, which you can get on Spotify. And by going on to iTunes, it's really well worth listening to. Stephen, uh, we're moving on to another subject now on Credit Suisse, uh, which, as Justin told us earlier, has lost $4.7 billion on uh, the chaos that's been going around a, um, some decisions that were made to lend money to a punter, effectively, in a private office. We've got a short clip here from Bloomberg. Let's have a listen to the way that they explain how things happened. Big move. Well, definitely the two standouts here would be the exit of Brian Chin and Laura, Laura Warner. That's, of course, the investment bank chief and the risk chief officer. Uh, and as you say, we're having a lot of capital changes as well. The suspending of the buybacks, that's not going to come back until they get their dividend back to full force. We have a proposal of a 10 cent Swiss franc dividend here. So that's a cut as well. And they're also not going to restore the buyback until they get their capital ratios back to where they want to be. Bloomberg has also seen a memo over the weekend that announces even more uh, executive and high-level departures at Credit Suisse. It's really a who's who of the risk department. For example, we have Paul Galiletto. He's the head of equity and sales trading. Parsu Shah, head of prime risk services, uh, prime services risk, rather. And then we have other people also involved in the risk department. So you can see where they're really, really focusing these cuts is what happened to risk and risk management. That's where the focus is in investment. Investigations, both when it comes to this U.S. hedge fund, Archegos, as well as Greensill, uh, both of those investigations being announced in this statement. We know that they're expecting a pre-tax loss for the first quarter, Danny, but what are some of these costs that are just mounting for the bank? Right. Well, of course, you have the cost of them having to sell a lot of these stocks, crystallizing losses, $4.7 billion, effectively wiping out their first quarter profit, beside, despite the fact that they had a very good quarter when it came to investment banking and new assets in their wealth management department. But this really is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to cost. You have to remember that as they address, address risk management and controls, they're going to have really high operational costs for from this quarter on, we could even see some of their revenues trimmed uh, if they rein in prime brokerage, for example, and they really focus inward. Uh, also, they could face legal costs, regulatory costs. They're investigating these things, as I said. And at the same time, they also mentioned in this announcement that they are going to look at compensating investors over supply chain finance funds. Reuters has previously reported that they might eat about 50 percent of the losses there. So that's another cost to add on top of this. So this is really just one moment in time of these costs they're announcing. We're likely to see more in 
and quarters ahead. Corky Koiman is banking and insurance analyst at Denka Capital and uh, the doyon when it comes to this sector of the market. He joins us now. Corky, uh, we had an African running this, this company, Credit Suisse, Tijan Tiam. When he was appointed there in 2015, there was much celebration on the continent. Uh, the Ivorian comes from a, a, a very strong background. He was previously the CEO of Prudential and then McKinsey. We won't say anything about that part of his pedigree. Uh, and when he was there, the share price was $26. It's now, when he left, it was under $10. He left in February 2020. Million dollar question for us is, is everything that's coming out now with Arcagos and, and Greensill, two massive disasters that have hit this huge international bank, is it his fault? It's, it's a good question, and it's maybe too early to say. Uh, what I can say is that I remember, not quite like yesterday, but I remember very well sitting in uh, when Credit Suisse had their investor day in 2015-16, where Tiam set out his new strategy. And the strategy at that stage was really to, to cut out underperforming units, uh, and by that way, dramatically cut costs, and then obviously grow market share of the units where they felt was their circle of competence. Now, I must say we were quite tempted, but listening to it, we said, you know, this is quite a high-risk strategy. Firstly, when you're going to cut costs, that means that you're cutting out often important parts of the business as well that are short-term superfluous maybe, but longer-term important. Uh, So it's a cost-cutting strategy. And secondly, if you at the same time grow market share into areas um, against quite strong opposition, if you just think UBS, uh, yeah, for one in Switzerland, you've got a lot of other investment banks in Europe and in the U.S. So, yeah, we stayed away, and, uh, you know, sometimes we get things right, sometimes we get things wrong, but this is one where I think the strategy, as you say, led to them taking too much risk. Um, and whether he was directly responsible himself or whether, you know, they went and appointed people with the instruction to grow market share. But I don't think it's coincidence that in the same quarter almost, you have this, the hedge fund loss, which was a massive loss and the clear, um, you know, poor risk taking or risk decisions. And you've got green cell as well, which, you know, on, on, on the, investment banking side where you're funding uh, an entrepreneur which clearly if you read the accounts was on a strategy that wasn't working so in essence it seems like credit suisse were on a strategy where to gain market share they could have been taking more risk than they should have simply to gain that market share and that this could be the result of that and that leads to the next question do you now buy or invest in Credit Suisse because it's now fallen to a price to NRV of 0.5, a PE, if you can believe the forecast I see at the moment, one year out of four and two years out of three. Um, so it seems incredibly cheap. But I think as that Bloomberg interview so clearly showed, there are a lot more risks. So is it one of culture? Are there more bad you know, decisions like this waiting to be become Apparent? Are there more regulatory regulatory fines ahead? Are there more client actions of negligence? Yeah. So, to my mind, uh, I'd rather stay with something like UBS or JP Morgan, which on the front foot, most probably going to take market share from Credit Suisse at this stage. So, yeah. But but in a nutshell, you know that is it. They've cut their dividend. They've cut their share buybacks. And uh, you, you're taking on staff who've, you know, at senior level who've got to now first prove themselves, turn the teams around. Um, it's going to take time. It, it's not a quick turnaround. Now, if you walk down uh, Hofbahnstrasse in Zurich, you will see these great institutions, so-called. Uh, UBS, you mentioned one, Union Bank of Switzerland, and Credit Suisse is one of them. So it's actually a very, very big deal to see almost the top layer of an organization like that kicked out. Justifiably, yep. because of the risks that they took. Well, yeah, uh, I think uh, the board should also go. <laughs> surely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Surely, yeah, the board is res- who- the board's responsible for strategy. So, if the board sets the strategy, 
the executive management yeah. must execute on it, which they yeah. seem to have done in this case, uh, and everybody loses, excepting the board. Yeah. It, exactly. It, it, it's like you know, the management of, of a football club who keep appointing the wrong manager and uh, just eat some when he fails, appoint another one, but it's their selection of the manager uh, who's bad. I mean, Man United, very good example. The guys who appointed Moyes as, as, as manager, they should have been fired. So the same here. The guys at the top often stay, and they set the strategy. They said to the CEO, they appointed, you know, rebuild the bank, and uh, either they said, we don't care how you do it, or they said, well, we want you to take market share. And they must have monitored every quarter. They would have gotten feedback from the exec team and from the CEOs to, uh, you know, the progress they're making. But obviously, unbeknown to them, there were big risks that were being taken. It must have shown up in you know, various metrics, but it, but it didn't. Stephen, from your side, uh, again, if you just have a look at a, at a broader picture here, how easy is it to identify when a company as like Credit Suisse, is going in the wrong direction? Is it just becoming too high risk? Well, I think if you look at the investment banks in general, uh, you know, they've all been going in the wrong direction for at least 20 years. I mean, if you go back to 2000 and you look at the share price, you know, Credit Suisse is down 90%, but UBS is also down about 80%, and Deutsche Bank's down 90%, and Merrill Lynch has evaporated into Bank of America, and you know, Goldman Sachs, which is the gold standard and has done much better than uh, uh, than everybody else. You know, they still now, they've become a bank. And so, you know, the problem is, is that I think that uh, investment banks um, as an industry, you know, they, they uh, certainly in my experience, and Corky's got uh, more experience, but I've got a reasonable amount here, is they, they, they kind of do the same things. You know, they, they tend to employ the same kind of people and the revolving doors are immense. I mean, everyone's been at all of them. Uh, and, you know, it's an industry. So, 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 so there's something wrong with this industry. You know, the basic, the basic economics or, of, of a business is that you have to be able to meet your cost of capital. So you should have a return that is above your cost of capital. Otherwise, you shouldn't be in business. And if you look at these investment banks, they've hardly ever met their cost of capital in 20 years. So there's something fundamentally wrong with these businesses. Yet the employees are all multimillionaires. You know, they still pay these outrageous bonuses and the shareholders are basically, you know, losing, as I say, 80 to 90% of their wealth over, 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 over two decades. And the problem, uh, I mean, so there are many problems and there's no accountability because it keeps on happening and it, they go from one scandal. I mean, we can all name the scandals. I mean, I can go back to the 1990s where they had the conflicts of interest with the, you know, with the uh, analysts basically prom- promoting stocks that they knew were rubbish. And, you know, it just the, the list goes on and on. I mean, it just doesn't stop. Uh, and that's the problem is that there's just no accountability and you're not changing behavior. And the last thing, just to add to that, is that there's perverse incentives in these banks uh, is that the, the, the rewards are outrageous. So it's a, it's a one-sided trade. Heads are win, tails you lose. So I, I risk the bank's capital. I leverage the bank. I risk the bank's reputation. If I get it right, I get an enormous bonus. And if I lose, you know, I don't get much or I might move on. Uh, you know, and that kind of goes up the ranks. So, you know, it's a very, very sad situation. Uh, and, you know, we always would hope something would change, but something hasn't, but, but nothing's changed uh, uh, up until now. Brilliant assessment there. We've seen in South Africa also investment banks from time to time have brought down the profits badly of South African companies. Corky, might there be one lurking? We've had an economy that's been smashed by this uh, lockdown on COVID. The investment banks in South Africa uh, playing a similar game to what they've been doing internationally, or are you confident that, that the right risk management's in place here? Yeah, no, I think, I think Stephen's assessment is a bit too simplistic in that a lot of what he says is true pre-2008. And post-2008, a lot has changed. And partly what has happened in, in Credit Suisse is reacting to this. So he's quite right. The behavior before 2008 was very short-term, very management-driven, uh, reward-driven. But a lot of the rules that have been put in place have ensured uh, that your capital levels are double what they were. Portfolios need to be a lot more uh, diversified. Risk-taking with balance sheet, cap- shareholders' capital is not allowed anymore. Um, and so that's why I think there will be quite a lot of 
investigations into Credit Suisse to see you know, whether they transgress rules. But I don't think it's as bad as it was. And that's why I think in answering your question, I would be surprised. If, I think this is, it won't be a once-off. There will be other uh, uh, potential bad debts lurking. But even in this case, yeah, it, 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 it's not close to sinking the bank and they're still paying a dividend. So I would be very surprised with what has happened and, and the capital rules and the diversification rules if there are, you know, um, you know, more cases like this, uh, of this size. I think, I think this is a very clear case of a management overstepping the rules. And that's why I agree on the Bloomberg side. There's, there's more coming on Credit Suisse most probably, but, you know, I don't think of this size, others uh, will necessarily follow. Koki, one of the main themes that have come out of this Archegos Arche- saga is the regulation of family offices. Um, I, I see the SEC is looking into it. Are you concerned that other banks or a lot of investment banks have similar kind of exposures um, that are waiting to blow up? Yeah, now that's a very good point because you've got the family offices which globally are very poorly regulated. Um, and you know, what regulators don't understand is that you try and regulate something, something else pops up. The next thing is, is the whole crowd investing. How are you going to regulate that? Um, so in the end, you must, must make sure that managements, uh, are, are, you're punished and are risk aware. So are there more family offices? Generally, we find family offices are actually fairly well managed. Um, so as I'd be, look, the events that are shaping up in terms of what's, what's happened in terms of, of, of bubbles being created in, in tech shares and, and, and Bitcoin and that type of stuff is leading to excessive, um, uh, gearing. So I, I think you are going to see more, um, more failures, especially if the market on the tech side takes a big punishment or if Tesla was to go down 30% again, which could quite easily happen, then I think you're going to see more players uh, take knocks. Uh, I'd be very, very surprised with everything that's been changed on the way banks have to be run if it would jeopardize you know, an individual bank or the system. Koki Koiman is with Denka Capital. And, uh, well, to close off our program tonight, we're talking to another big name, Andrew Golding, who's the uh, chief executive. Was it chairman now, Andrew, of uh, Pam Golding Estates? No, just chief executive. Just chief executive. We got a very interesting um, communique today from FNB, which says that in the past quarter, in the quarter to end December, the demand or the increase in purchases – of second properties by its clients, and F&B being a, a huge player in the mortgage market, was up 46% year on year. Now, remembering uh, the last quarter of 2019 uh, wasn't a, t- a period of COVID, so we can't take that in. The final quarter of 2020 was also not really uh, lockdown influence. Are you seeing this on the ground as well, that the rich people are going out and buying more and more properties or more second homes? Yeah, I think certainly um, post-lockdown, the market has has taken all of us by surprise. <clears throat> I think we were um, expecting there to be some pent-up demand post-lockdown, and then the market would um, basically represent what was happening pre-COVID. But that certainly hasn't been the case. I think fueled by um, interest rates primarily, uh, that has underpinned uh, the, the middle and lower end of the market. And then later on in the year, towards the end of um, the, the year, we started to see the, the top end of the market begin to move. And there's been no question that uh, the emergence of these so-called Zoom towns has buoyed the, the second home market or the traditional second home market, where people have taken a view that they can work uh, and live from anywhere and therefore have made different lifestyle choices to those that they might have made before COVID. So it's not necessarily people buying properties to let out. It's actually buying those who can afford it, buying uh, Zoom homes. Uh, It's interesting because I was talking uh, to the guys from Gowry Estate, and there the sales have boomed. Gowry's in Nottingham Road in in the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands. Lots of people apparently are moving from the cities, from Johannesburg and Durban, living in Gowry, and then traveling when they need to to the offices. Is this the trend that you're picking up, Andrew? Yeah, with, without a doubt. I think we've seen um, you know the so-called semigration trend 
which again was present in, 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 in some shape or form before COVID. It then quietened down um, towards the end, the beginning of last year, and then it's definitely picked up again. But I think under different circumstances where uh, people are definitely dif- making different lifestyle choices and deciding to, to live uh, where they can and want to and then commute back to work. So that is a, a trend that we've seen right uh, across the country. And the prices of those properties? Well, I think there was a, a general price correction which was due in the market, um, certainly in the Western Cape as an example. And we saw that. We saw opportunistic buyers um, uh, cashing in at the beginning of the post-lockdown period. Uh, we saw sellers, some sellers in distress, and as a consequence of that, there was a significant deal flow. But I think um, as uh, time has gone on, we've started to see more of a balance between buyers and sellers uh, and certainly much less uh, of that opportunistic buying. And our expectation is that prices are going to start to move again. Um, house price growth has been very muted for the last couple of years, um, but it may be that this is the start of it moving again in a more significant positive direction. There's a very powerful piece in the Wall Street Journal, our partners today, which says that the U.S. house market, housing market, is at its most active and prices going up faster than at any time since 2006. And you might remember that was a, a, a boom or a bubble that was fueled and brought the emerging market crisis. How long does it take for these global trends to, to hit South Africa? That one we can understand would be through the creation of money, but South Africa's got its own unique issues. Could, could something like that wash up on our shores? It's, it's possible, but I think our market is much more um, locally determined. Um, the foreign influence, uh, particularly in terms of um, foreign buyers, is, is relatively small. Um, our market is predominantly fueled by the interest rate environment, and uh, there's no doubt that that's what's really driving uh, the middle and lower end of the market at this stage, um, with, with the top end also beginning to move uh, slowly off, uh, off the back of, I think, some, some optimism and sentiment and a changed environment from a living and working perspective. Stephen, just to close off with uh, for tonight's program, would you consider semigrating as, as Andrew's described it? Uh, I already have, Alec. I'm in Cape Town. Uh, I did this, uh, <laughs> of course, from, from Jovi <laughs> to Cape Town. 15 years ago. So, uh, um, but, uh, you know, uh, without a doubt, I think that, uh, um, you know, a combination, as Andrew said, you know, the combination, the, the big structural change, what's a structural change here is that you don't have to be in the office all the time and maybe you don't have to be in the office at all. You know, and with, and uh, I think what's also been really interesting, you know, as a business owner, when you speak to your employees, you realize that some of them are commuting two hours each way, uh, you know, and it's kind of you never really thought of that. So, um, you know, uh, the flexibility and, you know, affordability and the quality of lifestyle, uh, you know, means that people are going to be reassessing this and probably also uh, so you can get more uh, bang for your buck. Uh, and also, uh, I think those people that have got jobs, because it's quite interesting, you know, what's happened with COVID is that obviously the economic fallout is terrible, but those people that have got jobs are actually wealthier. Interest rates are much lower. So that frees up an enormous amount of disposable income. Your expenses are dropping because you're not going out, you're not spending as much on clothes, et cetera. Uh, you know, so those people can invest more in uh, in the homes. I mean, what we what we do see in Cape Town, and as Andrew said, it's a... Um, uh, what we see in Cape Town, certainly what I'm experiencing, I've had two instances of foreigners uh, who are coming to South Africa because of COVID. So one is uh, from Belgium and the other one is from Germany. Young people saying that we're going to be locked down or I'm not going to be in the office as, as, as much as I need to be. I'd much rather be in Cape Town. Uh, you know, and hopefully we do see some more of that, but it's probably not going to move the needle overall. But as we know, those kind of people, the multiplier effect uh, of the income that they can bring into South Africa uh, would be uh, would be fantastic, and this comes back to at the start the vaccine. You know, if we can get our get get our house in order with some of these macro things, I think the potential here would be uh, enormous. Well, if you can work from anywhere in the world, who would choose a better location than Cape Town? Stephen Nathan, thanks for being with us. Andrew Golding as well. And before we close off, uh, Justin will just bring us up to date with the markets. The JSE All Share Index was strongly up to sixty eight thousand one hundred. Some of the day's highlights include Sabanya Stillwater up 5% to 69 rand a share. That's on the back of stronger precious metals prices. MTN increased 3 rand 50 to 89 rand a share. PPC fell 5% to 2 rand 80 as insider trading allegations lurk following the company's restructuring and financing announcement. And car tracked down 10% to 58 rand a share as investors remain concerned about the price that are list on the NASDAQ. 
The rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 54 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 15 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 22 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,743 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $64.20 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 840,000 rand a Bitcoin. In the U.S. markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is flat, and the S&P 500 and NASDAQ are slightly in the green. 14 rand 54. Well, that tells you that uh, maybe those Europeans are bringing their money to Cape Town already. Uh, Thanks for being with us on the Biz News Power Hour. We're on air from 5.30 p.m. all weekdays, South African time. If you're in Cape Town, you can catch us on the radio, fine music radio, of course. Uh, Otherwise, on Biz News Radio channels on Spotify and iTunes, where you'll get the recordings. And we do have direct live streams, both through YouTube, yes, we're still on YouTube, uh, even though Nick Hudson's video isn't, and uh, through our own uh, channels here on Biz News. Go onto the Biz News website and you can pick it up. But from uh, Justin, myself, uh, Dudu, and the team at Biz News, until tomorrow at 5.30, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News. Biz News.